Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon, uh, before we get started, a quick update where you and I are going to have to embarrass ourselves by revealing how bad our predictions were from earlier this year for the outcome of the U.S. Uh, political elections happening right now. Oh, yeah. There's just, I'm out. I'm out of the prediction game entirely, uh, <laughs> along with Marco Rubio. Indeed. Uh, okay, so we just had Super Tuesday in the U.S. Super Tuesday 2. Super Tuesday 2, <laughs> right. The second Super Tuesday. Marco Rubio is out. Ted Cruz is still very much in it. Donald Trump is still in a very strong position. It actually looks like there's a chance he's going to get the majority of the delegates, if not a likelihood. Mm-hmm. So if that happens, then you and I will have been proved totally incorrect. But you called for a brokered convention, didn't you? So. I thought it was, there was going to be a brokered convention that Ted Cruz would win that. Right. right. That still technically could happen. Right. But it kind of all relies on John Kasich, who uh, Gail Collins in the New York Times today memorably called the medium-sized, crinkly-eyed boulder between the Republican (laughs) Party and Donald Trump. Okay, but this is weird. Okay, Kasich (laughs) won the state of Ohio, which helped in preventing Donald Trump from consolidating uh, his lead. And it meant that there was a stronger chance that we would end up in a brokered convention. Kasich himself... Okay, has very few delegates. Yeah, I mean, right? he's not going to be the nominee. There's <laughs> right. no way. It's just that he's, you know, it potentially makes a little bit of a clearer path for for yeah. Cruz to be a challenger. But I mean, and, and I think the thing, the thing that's interesting that's happening with Trump is that normally you'd think we're about halfway through the primary season, and normally this is the point where the, a, a candidate is consolidating support, and it actually kind of feels like he's maybe losing support, or you know, now people are starting to say, oh. Like he's actually going to be the nominee. Oh, wait, we need to stop him. And so that's it's going in the opposite direction that you would think. Right. So all still very uncertain, yeah. although it looks increasingly likely to me, at least, that Trump is going to win. Still hope for my earlier prediction of Ted Cruz, but I suspect that both of us are going to end up being wrong. Um, Won't be the first time. Right. In terms of the Democrats, I mean, Hillary Clinton, we both picked that one, right? Yeah. Okay. So good. Great. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. Three topics on today's show, two guests. First, David Berkus. He's a professor of management at Oral Roberts University, and he's got a new book out about how you should design your workplace in the office. This was really fascinating. It was full of counterintuitive advice. That's one you're definitely going to want to listen to if you, like most people, I think, are really frustrated with the workplace. And then afterwards, we are joined by Tina Fordham, the chief global political analyst at City. She's got two big new papers out along with her colleagues. One is about global political risks. The other is about women in the economy. These are some really fantastic and intriguing topics. So stick around. Lots of fun stuff coming. Okay, first up on the show, you're going to get to hear Shannon and I argue about open plan offices. But more important, we're going to talk about how to design a workplace. Our guest is David Berkus. 
He's a professor of management at Oral Roberts University and the author of a new book called Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we are here to discuss one specific chapter in the book. I, I, okay, I started to get that impression as I walked through your offices. Yes. Yeah. It's about open plan offices. Yeah. And my profound hatred. Our <laughs> listeners may have seen a, a video Cardiff even did about his hatred of this. So this is this is like totally your oh campaign. Oh my god! Oh this, now I'm just dis- now I'm disappointed because I did not know that. I didn't watch the video ahead of time. This this is. Right, I have homework be, to do after this. Yeah, this is going to be cathartic for me. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Okay, so uh, there is a whole chapter in this book uh, under new management about open plan offices. Yeah. Take us first through a little bit of the history that you get into in the book and how open plan offices came about and what their original appeal was. So I think two trends kind of merged and that produced this sort of mega trend of moving towards open offices. The first is probably what everybody thinks that I would be here to actually say, which is, oh, they're great for collaboration and they produce these serendipitous meetings and and you get a bigger network and all of these wonderful things because it's so easy to talk to other people, right? And that's true. The, The other trend, right, was the recession, Right. It suddenly became people suddenly realized, oh, it's way cheaper to have an open office. I mean, you fit more people. Right. The amount, (laughs) the amount of square footage per person could be dramatically reduced, but you could do it under the illusion of what we're doing it for creativity and innovation and collaboration, which is actually, I mean, my whole first book was about that. So I expected to come in like, yeah, this is pretty good. Let's do this. Right. And there are, I mean, the research supports that there are definitely benefits to the open office. The challenge is there are also costs. And there are a lot of costs. And I don't believe the costs outweigh the benefits. I mean, in, a, in an open office floor plan, people are more likely to feel stressed. They're more likely the, – my favorite stat is they're more likely to call in sick for work. People in open offices take more sick days than people in traditional offices, which either means that they're sick or they're sick of their open office, which yeah. it sounds like you're in the second category. But but yeah. no, we also have – there's definitely been a virus going around this office. So I <laughs> believe it, the first one. Too. And it really – I mean it can spread much easier because, yeah. yeah, ideas spread in an open office, but so do germs. Right. Right. So – how did they? How did they origin, originally come about? Like, what was the uh, initial impetus uh, in the '90s for? Was it just the cost, or was this a kind of follow the leader thing where somebody heard about some? Oh, know, it was cool definitely new a company yeah, yeah. that was doing it. So you see, like, I I actually attribute. I mean, this is not a perfect start on the timeline, but I think the real when it became trendy and cool was when Pixar opened what's now called their Steve Jobs building, which is, you know, you remember the history, Steve Jobs left Apple, bought a little company, turned it into an animation powerhouse, suddenly sold it back to Disney, and everyone was watching Pixar. And Jobs actually had a hand in creating the office. And one of the most famous things he did is he had one big central bathroom. Like the whole office had a big central corridor and then had one big bathroom for each, you know, for male and female. And the idea was that if everybody has to walk a thousand people from all different places in the the building, they'll meet in this central corridor and in this um, bathroom, and that'll produce these serendipitous conversations. He's not the first one to sort of go to the open office floor plan. It's funny. He was the first one to get like a lot of traction with it. And after that, people started saying, oh, why, why did this happen? And people started writing articles about the benefits of serendipity and collaboration and all that sort of thing. What's funny is we forget the, hit, the real history of it, which started way back with um, Jay Shiat and Shiat Day. This was an experiment in the early 90s where he actually decided, I'm going to reinvent the office. Nobody has an assigned desk. Everybody gets a laptop. You show up for work and you find a place and you get to work and you don't need to have an office. If you need personal items, you get a locker. Everybody forgets that that was a colossal failure. 
Right? People, there was one, my favorite story is there was one person that had to use the trunk of her car as a locker. And there was another that carried around all her paperwork in a little red wagon because there was nowhere to put it. She became known as sort of the little red wagon lady because all of her <laughs> papers had to be pulled around because she needed them all, right? So it was a colossal failure. They ended up having to redesign it already. And we, and we, we forget the reasons why. The reasons why people were stressed. People couldn't find places to work. People didn't have any sort of sense of home. They were squabbling for territory too, right? Right, right. And so, and, and you see this in, in some of the redesigns that are actually effective that we can talk about a little later. But I think it's interesting that I think the ethos of a Steve Jobs and Pixar made us forget that this experiment had already happened and it produced a failure. Right. And so after that, everybody started talking about that. And then, of course, fast forward into the 2000s, suddenly it's, it's really economical to just like throw the whole thing out, renovate and buy a bunch of Ikea tables and say, here you go. It's your new open office like the folks at Pixar and, and the tech companies have, et cetera. Like we forget that a lot of times you go to the open office because you're bootstrapping a company. It's not It's not because it's the tech company thing to do. It's because you don't have any money. So long tables are what you can afford, and so you do it. And we try and recapture that ethos, and it doesn't work. Yeah, the, the experience for me is definitely one of constant distraction and interruption, mm -hmm. right, which it seems intended to facilitate, and I guess in many ways it is. The problem seems to be when you have to do work that requires – deep concentration right because that is not easy it's not easy to get into a frame of mind where you're deeply into your work like it takes a little while you have to get into it you have to be i think uninterrupted and if you're in an open plan office you can never quite get there and even if you get there you're immediately brought right. out of it you know it's it's and, and even if it doesn't happen because you get a lucky 15 minutes where nobody stops by or nobody does something weird out in the open or nobody shouts your name. It's the threat that's always there. It's right. ever present. It's all pervasive. You know, it's funny as you said that that phrase 15 minutes, and that's actually what the research says. When you get distracted from doing that deep work, it takes you about 15 minutes to get back to where you were mentally, right? Mm -hmm. So now imagine an open office floor plan. If around every 15 minutes somebody is coming up to you, then yeah, you're never – you might be able to clear your email inbox by the end of the day, but you're not actually doing any deep work. You're not moving the ball forward because of how long it takes to get back into that mentality. And Shannon is a little bit less bothered by open plan offices than I am. Uh, but maybe that's because I have those um, air traffic controller headphone <laughs> things. So like when I'm trying to write, that's just what I put on. And it's also become like a visual signal, right? That like if people in the Don't office are wearing me. headphones, like you might think twice about doing it. I mean, like on the one hand, like I've spent some time um, uh, actually in other F2 bureaus where there are offices and it can be super isolating, I find, to feel like I'm just like sitting in this room with the door closed and not interacting, not kind of knowing what else is going on, not being able to bounce ideas. At the same time, like, yes, it can be incredibly distracting to have somebody across from you who's having a loud phone conversation. You know, I think for a lot of reporters, you know, there's sometimes sensitivity around the phone conversations you want to have. And so here we do have some like breakout rooms, but it feels like there's never enough of them. Right. They're always being used. Right. You know, I think where they where, have no windows, they have they're no aesthetically <laughs> crap. You right. Know. But where, I mean, I think the, the things that I do like, like I actually think the things that are kind of more successful, it's, it's actually more along the Steve Jobs line. Like, like we have this, you know, since we moved to this this building, which we've been in for about two and a half years, we have this kitchen area and then like a big long table and people eat lunch there. And in our old office, there was nowhere to eat lunch communally. So you just like either went out or ate lunch at your desk. And so the fact that we have that, those sort of shared spaces, I think is nice. And that does sort of create opportunities to talk. But I don't necessarily know that we need all need our desks to be like that too. Yeah. And well, one of the interesting things I found when researching under new management was that the, it's really not an either or conundrum. 
like the single biggest way an environment affects an employee's productivity or morale, et cetera, is actually what we call perceived control. So how much control do they think they have over their environment, right? So I've seen closed office spaces where they're closed, but one wall is a window. And because of that, and customers can see your office. So your office always has to look this way, right? I mean, I've been in offices where they literally say you can only have two picture frames on your desk. No more. Just two. Everybody gets two, right? And so that idea is, okay, you might have a nice looking office. You might even have a private office. But if you don't have any control over your workspace, then it's still going to have a lot of negative effects. And that's why... The, the companies that I think are doing it the best are the ones that are creating the, the best phrase I've ever heard is a palette of places, meaning, you know, they, they break with the assumption that there's one best place and there's one best place even for people, but also one best place because we all do different types of work throughout the day mm-hmm. and there's not one best place to do all types of work. So they'll create an office space that has some open in, open floor plan area to it that has some corrals for individual work that has conference rooms of all sizes for teamwork. And the idea, I mean, a lot of times now, it's definitely not cost effective as a long table, <laughs> right? But the idea, a lot of them will have, let's say we have 100 employees, well, we have space for 200 people. Why? Because you might be needing to get up and go somewhere and you need to find a new place. And that's the that's really one of the bigger mistakes that um, Shiat Day made was they had space for 100 people, let's say, and there were 100 people. So there wasn't really, you had to fight for a territory and then hold on to it for the rest of the day. Where if you create sort of a range that people can move around in, then you give them that perceived control and you let them decide what's the best environment to do their best work. That sounds like it's also an issue of establishing the right cultural norms, right? Because that that kind of design where there's a range of spaces, you know, some places where you can go to talk to people. And I've definitely had a lot of those serendipitous meetings, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not all bad. And then balance that out with the ability to go somewhere quiet where I can get some work done. But it has to be understood that it's okay for me not to be at my desk all the time. Right. right. People aren't asking, where are you? Yeah. Or assuming yeah. that you're not working. You've got to be right. at your desk in front of your computer. And I have to be able to see him, that kind of thing. It has to be understood that if I'm not there and if you can't reach me by email right away, right. that's okay. That's part of my job. Nobody's going to have a problem with it. Yeah. So now we, now we touch on a broader mistake in management, which is this idea that presence equals productivity. Right. Right. That if I can see yeah. you, then I clearly know you're working. And this is why, I mean, the age old advice of like, make sure you come into work like five minutes before your boss does and you leave like five minutes after. And that way he thinks, oh, you, you know, you're a hard worker, et cetera. And, you know, those tricks are great. But again, let's talk about actual productivity. And really that comes down to everybody's different. And you do, you need that culture that kind of celebrates the idea that even among, I mean, we think about introversion and extroversion and open and closed offices. The truth is everybody exists on a sliding scale between those two factors. And it's up to them to decide how much outside contact do I need in a day? How much you know, alone time do I need in a day? And that's an individual thing. It can't be solved company-wide. So you, do, you need a culture that celebrates those individual differences. Fantastic. Before we let you go, I want to go through uh, some of the other topics in the book, some of the other bits of advice that you give, uh, and do like a kind of lightning round where we just list a thing and then you tell us in 20 or 30 seconds yeah. why you think this is a good okay. idea. All right. Uh, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Outlaw email. So in general, email is a productivity tool. It's it's cheap and it's asynchronous, so we use it all the time. But the problem is then we get email all the time and we think we need to respond all the time. And so we never get that downtime. We never get that focus to do deep work. All right. Lose standardification policy. Maybe something like what Netflix has done. Yeah. So, I mean, this comes actually comes down to trust, not vacation days. Companies now don't necessarily track whether or not you're here eight to five and what days you are working. And employees at Netflix basically stood up and said, why are you tracking our vacation days? And they didn't have a good answer. And they said, you know what? We trust you. And the amazing thing about Netflix is right after that policy worked really well, 
they switched to an expense report policy that had five words, act in Netflix's best interest. Again, it comes down to trust. Okay. The next one is make salaries transparent. I take it you mean so that everybody in the company knows everybody what knows everybody, everybody else gets is paid. making. Yep. I did not expect to be an advocate for this one, but <laughs> um, you know, I thought about, oh, it's privacy, it's private information, et cetera. And yeah, it's uncomfortable letting people know what you get paid. But the research is clear. People have a greater sense of collaboration. They're more likely to work hard to improve what their pay is. They're they're more likely to have a higher morale and societal-wide, things like the gender wage gap dramatically decreased in a transparent condition. Yeah, I would say for, for young women particularly, that's actually incredibly yeah. important. There's right? a lot of research that supports that women in minority groups, uh, especially in knowledge work uh, sectors, are really drawn to these transparent companies because they know they don't have to keep that in the back of the mind. Am I being discriminated against or treated unfairly? Mm -hmm. I, I want to stay on this one for just a second before we continue with the lightning round part of it because this seems to me like a good idea, but it also seems like an idea that would be really hard to implement in a place where that had never been done before, especially in traditional companies. Like it seems like one of those things where you might descend into a kind of Hunger Games type situation <laughs> where like everybody, oh my God, well, Bob just don't down be the street is making 20 yeah. grand more. You have to give me a raise right now. This is BS. Well, but maybe you do, right? So this is the challenge. There, there are a lot of companies that start with transparency from the get-go, but many, I mean, Whole Foods is a great example, had thousands of employees when they flipped the switch. And you do have to make sure that whatever system you're using is fair before you pull back the curtain. And a lot of times that means giving a lot of people raises. And other times that means actually having a frank conversation and saying, hey, in the interest of fairness, we actually need to bring you back towards the median, mm -hmm. which is a difficult conversation, sure. But that's a short-term cost. And the long-term benefits definitely outweigh it. And okay. I mean, to be fair, I think about like one of our biggest bureaucracies, the government. I mean, people, mm -hmm. there's like a grade system, right? And people have, people's salaries are tied to those grades. And so, yeah. so it is semi-public. And that's that's actually the the one that I advocate the most for, either mm -hmm. what, what we call leveling. So mm -hmm. having certain levels that have a set pay, not a pay range where different levels overlap, but a clear cut, this level makes this range. Mm -hmm. And then the next range starts at the next pay. Or some companies will just say, here's the formula we use to calculate everybody's pay. So if you wanted to do the math and figure out what your coworker makes, you could do it. But the important thing is just, you know, that there's a uniform and fair standard for how your company determine your pay. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to feel like you're being treated fairly because you're being treated fairly. Right. Okay. The next one is ban non-competes. So, so this is another interesting one. Non-competes are, are one of those well-meaning policies, basically signing and saying, if you come to work for us, you can't go work for a competitor for a year or so after you leave. And the idea is we're going to pour all sorts of resources into you. We don't want you taking them and going to another firm. That's actually kind of short-sighted. The, the research supports that when, when somebody leaves firm A and goes to firm B, both firms actually benefit from a knowledge sharing because of that new network connection that's made. Uh, moreover, states where non-compete clauses are totally void, like in California, we see them dramatically having uh, a draw towards talent. As one of my uh, friends, Orly Lobel, a law professor, says, talent wants to be free. Um, so we see it better for the state and local government. We see it actually better for the companies because of that knowledge sharing. So it's a well-meaning idea, but the value is just not there. Ditch performance appraisals. I love this one. I mean, another well-meaning idea, the idea that, hey, we should let you know how you're doing and how you can improve performance. The, the problem is I think we do it definitely not frequently enough, right? We do an annual review, and at that point, it's really useless talking about January when it's December, right? So we can't actually make that performance improvement. But the biggest thing is we got it in our head that we could attach a label to everybody. So you're an exceeds performance or meets performance or underperforms, et cetera. And every annual review just turns into a negotiation about which label you're going to get stuck with. You can't have a frank conversation. So a lot of firms now are throwing that in the garbage pan and retraining their managers on how to have more frequent informal conversations about feedback and expectations and those sort of things. And 
And that's a really, I think it's a great idea. But what I love is even if you don't have the ability to ditch a performance appraisal for your whole company, you still have to do that annual review because HR makes you. You can still learn how to have those informal conversations. Yeah, there's a problem of uh, formality, it seems, with performance appraisals as well, mm -hmm. where if you're trying to have one of these conversations, but it's being done on, with the understanding that somebody's going to write this down and somebody's going right. to put a couple of stars next to it, you're not going to necessarily be as open as you would. You're, you're essentially there to just present your case. It's right. like you're trying to sell yourself to your own boss instead of discussing ways to actually make things and, better. And you see it in the media. There's always like a, here's how to nail your performance review. Well, this should be a time where we're having frank and honest conversations about performance, not just trying to nail it so you can look really good. Right, right. Take sabbaticals, which we are uh, at the FT are yes, fans of. The FT gets one of these right. <laughs> do you, do you really? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome! Every yeah, four years. So I was actually shocked to learn this is the the coolest thing I think from this entire chapter that the first U.S. based company to roll out sabbaticals, McDonald's, was really? not. Yeah, was not expecting that. <laughs> Intel followed right afterwards, and then it became kind of a tech trend. But actually, McDonald's experimented with it first. Wow. And it works for two reasons. I mean, one, it gives people a, a, some downtime, a time to sort of refresh, also a time to learn new skills that they can bring back to the workplace. What I like most about it is in a management context, it actually lets you stress test new leaders. So you have a manager who's departing and you know that person, say, we want, we want her to move into that role later. We'll put her in that role temporarily while so-and-so is on sabbatical. And we can see what developmental opportunities do they still need. We could even see maybe it's not for them, right? But we can learn what we need to do to develop that person instead of just throw them into the role and then train them after the fact. And finally, celebrate departures. Mm. So this is an interesting one. I don't, have, you ever, have you ever quit a company? A lot of times yeah. you quit a company, you get the security guard with the cardboard box, right. and it's over, <laughs> right? And that doesn't really send the best message that like we're proud of everybody that we used to work for. But moreover, there's a realization that every organization exists inside a network, a network of competitors and vendors, suppliers, all that sort of thing. And when somebody leaves your firm, Unless they're leaving the entire industry, they're usually going somewhere else in the network. And you really do benefit from that connection, both because they're now an ambassador for your company and your brand somewhere else, but also because they can give you information back about what else is going on in the industry that you might not be able to see because you don't have anybody that works over there. So really, it's kind of where you exist in the broader network really matters. And when you celebrate departures and build alumni networks, you get sort of feelers out throughout the whole network and you can adapt to changes much more easily. If Shannon were to ever leave the FT, I'd be really upset, but I'd definitely give her a golf clap a as golf, she walked out the building. Yeah. Come on. No, as a long golf as the cake is a good one, like <laughs> oh. a good thing. Like as long a, as the you know, cake fits in the cardboard box, right. you know, you can take it with yeah. you. <laughs> it would be the kind of golf clap that starts slowly and All then everybody right. else would join in and then, you know. We'll, <laughs> More <we'll>, importantly, <laughs> hopefully you would talk to her after with a golf clap. Hopefully, yeah, yes. Yeah, totally. Sure. Hopefully that won't happen. David Burkus has been our guest. The book is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Moving right along. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, then you're probably the type of well-informed person who's aware of the refugee crisis in Europe, the risks of the slowdown of economic growth in China beyond its own borders, the widespread rise of populist, nationalist, isolationist sentiment, and some of its uglier manifestations in political parties and candidates throughout the developed world. What do these risks all mean for the global economy, and how good a job do financial markets do of pricing in these risks? Joining us now is Tina Fordham, Chief global political analyst at Citi, 
and the co-author, along with her colleagues, of a big new report on global political risks. Tina, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, here's where I want to start. When people think of political risks, I think they usually think of wars, they think of failed states, squabbles over disputed territories, that kind of thing. This report is interesting because it describes a new kind of risk, one that's converging with those older, more traditional or conventionally thought of political risks. Why don't you tell us what that new risk is about and how we know that it's converging with older political risks? Thanks. Well, certainly there have been uh, many periods in history where there have been huge spikes in, in political risk and it produced economic turmoil. If we can go back to the collapse of empires and, and World War I leading to World War II. Um, but in the period since the, the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, there has been an unprecedented, really, period of peace and prosperity. What we take on in this report is to, to look at some of the indicators that we can assess for answering the question that investors have, are geopolitical risks really worse? Uh, answer, yes. And then this notion that we develop this concept of box populi risk, which is more about the rise of non-mainstream political candidates, political parties, and more protests. Now, the convergence notion, what does that mean? Typically, there are two transmission mechanisms for political risk um, to, to hit markets in the global economy, and they have been either a growth shock or an oil price shock. Now, one of the things that's really unusual, uh, surprising, and counterintuitive is that we can have such turmoil in the Middle East, and not only is it not producing an oil price shock, of course, we have oil prices lower for longer. Um, we can come back to that later. The convergence idea, what we've suggested is that the reason why we haven't had either oil price shock or growth shock is liquidity, 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 liquidity. QE on the one hand and shale gas on the other. But what we think and what we talk about in this report is the sense that the refugee crisis, which is a culmination of foreign policy failures in the Middle East, plus people globalizing themselves, uh, plus weakened failing states, creates a new channel and one that can hit developed market political risk in a way that we haven't uh, expected. It used to be that bad things happened in faraway places, and that was bad for the region, but there wasn't a, a potential for it to create systemic risk or develop market risk. Okay, and uh, I want to talk about the end of this period of prosperity that you described in the report, because it lasted for quite a while after the uh, end of the Cold War. It went into the 2000s, um, and you uh, you sort of find the locus of the end of this period in the global financial crisis. Talk about what a profound impact that had on the global, you know, on the economies of the developed world, and why it was so destabilizing for political risk, and not just something that caused a period of sluggish growth and a sort of endless uh, sequence of debt crises in Europe and elsewhere. Well, I want to be careful that we don't suggest this the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> I'm not. It's it, you know, it's not as gloomy as all that. Although a lot of people are are very angry for for reasons that that we can go into. But it's more a sense of the the notion that this period that w most of us have grown up in, either as humans or as m managers making business decisions, the last 25 years has been the most peaceful and prosperous in human history. And, uh, you know, all good things come to an end. But it's not a sudden stop. So what I'm suggesting really is that the global financial crisis is a bookend. And like with any other transition to a, a new era or a paradigm shift, as us, you know, 
poli-sci nerds like to talk about it, uh, it, it takes time for this to evolve. Um, it's the end of the Pax Americana, which we talk about a lot in the report. The U.S. is still has the biggest military and, and is a superpower, but exercising that power in a very different way. And that's leading to a power vacuum on the one hand, space for other actors, as we see Russia in Syria and then not in Syria, and a period of change. Um, but we've all got used to this sense that uh, uh, that we'll see some kind of reversion to the mean, the sort of pre-crisis mean, everything will go back to the way it was. Uh, and I'm suggesting that isn't going to happen for, for various reasons, but we shouldn't keep expecting um, to, to see the same movie that we've got used to in the last 25 years. Okay, let's go into some of these themes uh, in a little bit more detail because the report uh, is nicely organized and useful for a podcast like this because we can go through them uh, one by one. So three key themes, breakdown of the international security architecture, number two, geopolitical and economic competition, number three, political and business legitimacy. Let's go through each of those one by one first breakdown of the international security architecture. You mentioned the end of the Pax Americana. I take it that by this you mean the end of the U.S. as the global cop. The guarantor of global security. And believe me, living in Europe as I do, there's great anxiety about that. The peace dividend was pretty useful for Europe, and it, of course, underpinned the EU enlargement process to, to a very great extent. Now, the U.S. is not evacuating the global stage, but as we saw when President Obama uh, declined to act on his own red lines in Syria, there is a sense that the bar for for U.S. intervention and, and what um, ought to trigger it is, is much higher and more selective. And whatever one might say about uh, U.S. foreign policy under President Obama, he certainly reflects the majority of, of Americans in, in terms of more isolationist tendencies and uh, a desire to be more selective about U.S. engagements. Um, that is something that is consistent with the will of the American people, but what we suggest is that it has major international consequences. Now, the boring stuff, the international security architecture, what does that mean? It means all those treaty agreements that have underpinned global security for the last uh, certainly several decades, and many of them since World War II. Now, everyone talks about periodically, do we still need NATO? I think following the uh, Ukraine uh, conflict, it's quite clear that NATO still has a role. But what I mean to say is, if you are in Japan or Estonia or even Israel, you wonder if the U.S. security guarantee is something that you can rely upon now in a way that 10 years ago really wasn't the case. Okay. Theme number two, geopolitical and economic competition. What do you mean by that? Well, what we mean is that state-to-state -state conflict is expensive, unpopular, and kills people. Uh, and in a time of vox populi risk, it's something that uh, leaders are, are going to exercise great caution about engaging in. But I don't think that means an end to projecting power, which is what states still want to do. So how are they going to do that if it isn't through, you know, my army's bigger than your army and is going to take a bit of, of your land? Um, now we have non-state actors doing that, by the way, like ISIS. Instead, more competition. So we talk about producer-producer uh, tensions in the Middle East. That means Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, this is a, a change in trend. Um, and we talk about more regional hegemons. So Russia and China are not looking for world domination, as they might have been in previous periods, but they certainly want to test 
that U.S. commitment to avoiding what Hillary Clinton said when she was Secretary of State, we don't accept the idea of regional hegemons. Russia and China would like to be able to exercise um, their own power as they see fit in their neighborhood. Final theme, you touched on it a little bit just now, political and business legitimacy. Well, this is huge, and we see it playing out in a great big way in the U.S. elections and in uh, a, a number of European contexts. The, the democracies and the advanced economies, despite returning to growth, you know, U.S. growth is going along at a pretty decent clip, even if people are, are not feeling it. Um, the correlation between economic growth and political stability and consistency is breaking down, just like correlations elsewhere in markets are breaking down. And one of the things that we can point to is a decline in trust and legitimacy, which is pretty squishy social science stuff, but there's data on this, and we cite it in the report. It has not recovered. And in fact, it's, it's not just limited to, say, the financial services industry, but business elites, political elites, and the media, sorry to say, all declining in trust. And you can see this uh, played out very clearly in how people are more willing, and this is in survey data, to trust what they hear on Twitter and from random people than, uh, you know, um, established pillars of, uh, of media such as the Financial Times. So People um, like me are more trustworthy <laughs> in, in, in a confusing world where there's too much information because everybody else has an agenda. So the report uh, IDs four hotspots. Um, three are geographic. Um, one is an asset class. So there we go through the intensifying pressures in Asia, uh, ongoing disruptions in the Middle East, the EU at risk, and a new commodities geopolitics. So can you take us through those and sort of, sort of you know, set up what's happening and what we can expect to happen? Well, <clears throat> let me get my crystal ball out. <laughs> <laughs> what can we expect to happen, I think, is uh, certainly more political volatility mm -hmm. and more Vox Populi risk. Uh, you know, again, even where, where growth returns, people aren't happy. And that's confusing for politicians because in the past, in this halcyon period I mentioned before, uh, when there was growth and a continuous improvement in living standards, which is something that we saw from the end of World War II up until, you know, fairly recently, um, there was a certain predictability. Now I think it means ultimately there are questions about what sort of social safety net, for example, do we want to have in the United States with Bernie Sanders running as a so-called socialist? It makes me laugh as someone living in Europe under the national health system in, in the UK. But I think that it's very much part of this phenomenon whereby if I can't expect improving living standards for myself and my children, then I need to have uh, a, a stronger social safety net and I'm going to question um, the distribution of, of goods. I think that we have to, to expect this to, to continue, this demand for political alternatives um, and uh, weak majorities. In practical terms, it means less prospect for reform. One of the things that comes up every year in the U.S. context is tax reform. How are we going to get that? Well, you need to have uh, probably one party controlling all three um, houses, uh, both houses of Congress and the White House for that to happen. In a political fragmentation scenario, we don't get that. So we have a kind of muddling through at the best of times. It means that in the event of a crisis, though, any of these uh, governments in the advanced economies is going to struggle to find the political capital and the means to, to act. Uh, and it means we're kind of in a, in a pretty fragile place, I, I think. This is a hard question, but do, do you think that markets are doing a better or worse job of pricing in geopolitical risks than before. And I ask because at the start of the year, 
there were tremendous fluctuations in quite a few asset markets uh, in the aftermath of the Fed's decision to raise rates and also because of what was happening in China, the slowdown there, and a lot of uncertainty about what the government and central bank want to do with the currency. It was interesting that markets were taken so by surprise by these, uh, by these moves, in part because a lot of people did anticipate that this was coming. And I guess my question is, how good a job do economies and markets in particular, financial markets do, of pricing in these geopolitical risks? And how should you know people in the markets, investors, think about it? Well, in a sense, investors haven't had to try to price them in because they've had that buffer from, from QE. And it's hard to underestimate just how important that has been. And one of the things that I know from having done political risk analysis for financial markets for 20 years now is that when there is abundant liquidity in the system, it doesn't really matter. It appears not to matter what's happening in the world. Now, uh, when, when Mario Draghi talked about whatever it takes, um, suddenly we went from uh, a, you know, a time in Europe where the risk of um, a change of government suddenly in Italy uh, sent bond markets crazy to you know, several near Grexit uh, brushes um, that barely moved markets. And that's purely because of that, that guarantee from, from the ECB. As we have less liquidity, the, the state of political risks will, will certainly matter more. So markets, uh, if we look at some recent examples, also don't tend to focus on the, the known knowns, the signposts, until right beforehand. So Brexit risk, something that we write about in the report, and that we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time looking at because it matters not just for the UK, but for European cohesion as we risk Frexit and Nexit and heaven knows what else, is a symptom of fragmentation, is worsened by the refugee crisis, and accelerated by Vox Populi risk. It's the perfect storm in many ways, but Prime Minister Cameron called that referendum in large part to, to deal with divisions within his own party. Okay, well, it's a fascinating report. Moving on to our next topic, the potential contributions of women in the global economy and how much has yet to be realized. And Tina, that's actually why you're here in New York with us. You are st sticking around to discuss this. Uh, you're going to be uh, attending or, and participating in a UN panel on this. Um, and you've also done a re another recent report along with your colleagues at City on this. So I want to start off kind of big scale here. Can you give us a sense of both the nature and the scale of the missed potential that you identify right now in terms of the gender imbalance we see in the global workforce? And I realize that's a big question. Well, first of all, I want to talk about why we wrote this report, because uh, there's, you know, women are our flavor of the month, if it's possible to say that. At Davos, everyone was talking about women this year, even though we only were 18 percent of, of the participants. And... Um, as a as a research analyst, I was interested in the economic and the business um, uh, implication of of this agenda. There's lots of people working on executive leadership and women on boards and things like this. But as a macro person, I was interested in the extent to which we're missing the trick. And I heard a presentation by Hillary Clinton's ambassador to women not long well a couple of years ago on um, women in the global economy, and she's talked about how. Uh, the impact of more women in the labor force would eclipse that of uh, rising China and India combined. And I thought, well, if that's true, 
why isn't everybody talking about it? So with that in mind, I went back to look at the data and to work with Heidi Krivo-Redeker, who was the first ever chief economist at the State Department, to put this report together and to put it in front of uh, institutional investors and business leaders. Now, on the corporate side, companies are definitely looking at this. And uh, furthermore, and I think as evidenced by the, the attention from the UN to this agenda, the time is now. We have slow growth, stagnating growth in advanced economies and in emerging markets. One way to reverse that is to remove barriers so that those women who want to work can participate in the labor force. Now, that's easier than said than done in, in emerging markets, countries where you might need, for example, to build roads and have public transportation so that women can get to work from villages or to wherever they are. So the upside in EM can be as much as 20 percentage points. Now, we're never going to get, we're never going to close that gap completely, but that tells you something. When we in markets are looking at, you know, half a point or a point of growth, countries like Canada and Japan uh, by making some, you know, in those cases, in advanced economies, pretty minor tweaks to uh, the tax system, removing the second uh, uh, marriage penalty, so-called marriage penalty, you're able to see meaningful boosts to growth. So my point here is not a normative perspective. There are lots of people who, who take that on, but to say, these policies are expensive. We need to grow it's time, you know, like Justin Trudeau said, it's 2016. It's, um, the, you know, if you, if you want to, to mobilize your uh, population, you want to add growth, let get out of the way of women. So one of the things that I really liked about this report was that it used comparisons across countries and it looked at the ways that different policies can affect female labor force participation and I guess I, I want to know, what are some of the effective policies that policymakers should be considering when they want to find ways to get women back into the labor force? I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> I was gonna, I'm going to try to be concise. First of all, traditional macroeconomists have not worked with gender before. They have not looked at, for example, federal budgets with a, through a so-called gender lens, meaning how does spending allocated like this affect women? And that is something that uh, I think increasingly will change. Gender economics has traditionally been a development discipline, right? Something in, in you know, in, in poor countries in the developing world. We at City are going to actually cover gender economics uh, as a mainstream research topic going forward following the, the success and interest in this paper. So in that sense, I think, you know, we're just one part of, of the zeitgeist. But, you know, if 50% of the population is not a special interest. Women are, girls are educated to the same level as boys in most countries around the world now. That's an investment that countries need to, to get a return on um, in, in some sense. So, um, you know, we, we, we look at things uh, like that. Yeah, there's a, an article in The Economist this week that had a, a great line reminding us of what Paul Samuelson, the Great economist, one of the giants of the 20th century, said that when a man marries his maid, GDP goes down. And one of the problems, and the reason that happens is that if you pay for you know housework, right, it gets counted in macroeconomic statistics. Whereas if it's work that's being done under the auspices of a family, it doesn't get counted. And in that way, we are dismissive of, we are yes. we denigrate a big chunk of the work that women do throughout the world, right? So that's unpaid care work, and yeah. it, it, it is a it contributes to why this is a complicated discipline, uh, because 
women who are not in the labor force as paid employees are, are certainly doing plenty of things, whether they are working in family firms, on family farms, or taking care of children and elderly people. Now, you asked what we can do about this. I think one of the key things, and it's uh, what the head of UN Women talks about, the mistake that uh, feminists of her generation made, uh, didn't bring the men with them. Well, millennial guys are driving this agenda in a way that I think is hugely important. One of the things that I conclusions I came to in the course of you know, taking this work around the world is we need to separate the family-friendly agenda from the diversity agenda. These are different things. You want to maintain employees, both men and women are parents, and um, also have parents. And as people live longer, um, the so-called you know sandwich generation and the pressures there are going to affect male employees as well as female employees. So in that sense, you know, we're kind of degendering the discussion. Another problem which, you know, is important not only for the, the gender debate, but for uh, other challenges is our policymakers are in their 50s and 60s and live differently than, than we do. They are, uh, according to colleagues that we work with at the Oxford Martin School, I love to use this quote, 30 years behind the times. And so I mentioned other issues. We also have done some work on technology and the labor force, the automation of the labor force, robots taking our jobs. That means they're also not as focused on those issues as they might be. And as we see the voting process still very much controlled by baby boomers in, in the United States and aging populations in, in Europe, the priorities for those voters are uh, are different from uh, people, um, you know, younger than them. And uh, that disconnect uh, has, has an impact. One final question, and then we got to get going. One of the really striking trends of the last couple of decades is that throughout the developed world, many more women are graduating from college than men each year. And I guess I'm wondering if you think that's going to have a big impact on female labor force participation, or if there are any other comments that you think in terms of how education uh, trends are going to play a role uh, within this topic? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head, and I'm going to be in the, in the Middle East next week talking about these themes where um, in, in the Gulf countries, for example, uh, huge investments have been made in education for men and women to uh, university level, at the same time as oil prices are lower and there are questions about the social contract. I'd put female expectations right in line with public expectations being higher more generally. That's our Vox Populi risk idea. You've educated your young men and women. You need to find employment opportunities for them. And what's more, you know, globalization and uh, social media means that their expectations for what their lives are, you know, should be like are, are like people everywhere. So the culture argument tends to be made by older people. Okay. Tina Fordham, Chief Global Political Analyst at City and co-author of two big reports, one on global political risks, another on women in the economy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Moving right along, Shannon and I are going to give you our long-form recommendations quickly acknowledging that we totally forgot to ask our guests for their long-form recommendations this week. This is what happens when Amy Keene is out, okay? Shannon, we need to get our stuff together. I know, our act I know. Together. But um, we both have good ones this We week, do so have okay. great long-form recommendations for our <laughs> listeners this week, so it's no big deal. Shannon. I read a novel this weekend called Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. 
And I just, I was totally, it was one of those, I started reading it, couldn't put it down, kind of read it through in about three sessions. It's about a little bit of everything. It's about World War II and Italy and making of Cleopatra in the 60s in Rome uh, with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and about ambition and Hollywood and family and romance. And it's really sprawling, but it's also like kind of this amazingly intricate story that weaves together and couldn't put it down. So I recommend it. The word epic sounds like it would uh, apply to this. Definitely epic. And it's, and it's, it's sort of knowing, it's knowingly. Yeah. And well, epic. And ep- what well, is it, it is an epic and it's also knowingly epic because it's sort of taking on uh, fairly epic subjects. Yeah. So. Big, sweeping, beautiful themes. Exactly. And just gorgeously written too. You read that all in one weekend? I did. I did learn how to speed read at some point. <laughs> I didn't um, do a whole lot else this weekend, let's be so, honest. Uh, <laughs> what about you, Carter? So my recommendation is a story in the New York Times. The title is Babies Killing Tests India's Protection of an Aboriginal Culture. It's about the Jarawa tribe, which has had very, very limited contact with anybody outside of its immediate tribe members for tens of thousands of years, right? Except it seems now that one of their tribe's members had a baby with someone who was outside of the tribe. And that baby was stolen from her, the tribe member, and found dead not long after that. And now there's a kind of controversy as to whether the Indian authorities should launch a murder investigation into the murder of a child, right? Or whether they should leave alone this tribe to have its own rituals um, and to be left sort of in isolation as it has been for so long. It's a really fascinating question. It brings up all kinds of issues of, I guess, what does it mean to be part of a civilization? What happens when uh, one civilization lives inside the territory of another? How do you deal with that? You know, how do, we, how do you treat each other? It's really intriguing. Highly recommend it. The authors are Ellen Berry and Hari Kumar. So, Shannon, I guess that's it. You that's know, it. Take, yeah. us, take us out. Thanks so much for listening. Um, We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Give us a call at 917-551-5012 and leave a voice message. You can also send us an email to alphachat at ft.com. You can tweet us. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. Please, if you like the show, go on iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. It helps other people find the show. And you can also let us know what you think. For show notes and links to our guests' publications, uh, you can check out our post at ft.com slash alpha chat. The show this week was remotely from afar, produced and edited by the amazing Amy Keen. Thanks, Amy, for everything. And thanks to our listeners. We'll be back with another edition of Alpha Chat next week. <laughs>